The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound Off with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Monumental movements in the Middle East as the UAE and Bahrain visit the White House, along with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. I'll take you live to my exclusive conversation with Ambassador Friedman, U.S. Ambassador to Israel. You don't want to miss that. What does it mean for the shifting, uh, shifting dynamics in the region plus all of the latest on the 2020 front and fiscal stimulus is there now a problem solvers caucus proposal out on fiscal stimulus a lot to get through all of that an oracle TikTok. leaders from the united arab emirates and bahrain joined president trump today at the white house to sign accords establishing diplomatic relations with israel becoming just the third and fourth Mideast nations to formally recognize Israel. Here's what President Trump had to say about it earlier at the ceremony. Together, these agreements will serve as the foundation for a comprehensive peace across the entire region, something which nobody thought was possible, certainly not in this day and age, maybe in many decades from now. Earlier today at the White House, I spoke to U.S. Ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, about the deal and also about how these new partnerships will allow Israel to reduce their dependence on China. I asked him first how these deals came about. Take a listen. Well, I think they started with a fundamental shift in American policy of uh, the United States uh, standing with its friends, with its allies, regaining trust of uh, of uh, its natural allies in the Middle East, and uh, and I think of being a very good friend to Israel. And I think uh, these other nations kind of looked at the uh, at the way our policy was evolving and said, you know, we also want to be a friend of the United States. Being a friend of the United States is a very good place to be in the Middle East. And I think that caused um, all these countries to come together under common interests. Specifically as it relates to the economy, that was one of the major negotiating chips as that were a part of these deals. How did Israel and the U.S. economy, how was that able to bring some of these partners on board? Well, you know, Israel is a, uh, is a, is a first world economy. America, obviously, is the leading economy in the world. Um, there is there's so much that um, America and Israel can offer uh, the Gulf states and, and vice versa. Uh, it's not a one-way street. Uh, I think uh, all of these folks have been trying to get together for years and couldn't find the right opportunity, the right, the right dynamic to do so. Um, I think with you know the president's um, peace through strength overall policy, it gave everybody the sense that this is the right time. There was some skepticism that the Saudis weren't going to be able to allow for there to be flights. Uh, and now that it was just going to be a, a singular flight and then it would it would pause. But now the Saudis have agreed to have flights. I mean, what role did the Saudis play in, in the negotiations specifically with UAE? Well, first of all, uh, the Saudis are also, of course, very close to Bahrain. So it's unlikely that uh, any of this would have happened without Saudi support. The, the Saudis have been great from the very beginning. You know, they allowed uh, the first flight, first commercial flight from Tel Aviv to um, Abu Dhabi. Uh, they then opened up their airspace more broadly to Israel, flying. Uh, you have no idea how much time that saves. You're talking about saving four hours on an on a, you know an eight-hour flight becomes a four-hour flight. Uh, it opens up uh, a lot of uh, South Asia to Israel in ways never before. So it's really um, a, a massive opportunity. The Saudis have been terrific in making that happen. All right. So I'm looking at the list: Sudan, Oman, Morocco. Who's going to be next? <laughs> 
Well, you know, look, if I told you that you, you couldn't make any money betting on it, right? You know? <laughs> is that a good list? Is that a good list? Am I uh, in the right? I, look, um, that, that's a good list. I think we could add to that list. I think there'll be others that are not on the list. Um, there are a lot of countries thinking about this, thinking about how to structure it, how to do it, um, when to do it. Um, but it's, uh, it's on almost everybody's plate right now, except maybe the EU, which has imposed a lot of discipline on its members. Um, I mean, on, on the issues like Jerusalem, things like that are, are much more complicated in Europe. But apart from that, I think not only we're we talking about normalization, I think we're talking about uh, more nations moving their embassies to Jerusalem. Um, I think you're just going to see um, Israel get to, get to a much better place diplomatically throughout the world. I ask this respectfully. F-35 jets to the UAE. Some Israelis have raised some concerns about that. How, if that sale goes through, if the F-35 jets go to, to UAE, how do you ensure that Israel still has its military edge in the region and doesn't you know, give up any security concerns? So, look, I'm not an expert uh, in, in, uh, in these types of issues. Um, uh, I, I would also say that almost no one that I've spoken to is an expert as well. I think this is an issue that has been around as a legal matter since 2008. Uh, aspirationally, it's been around probably for 40 years. The way this gets dealt with, the experts sit in a room and they work this thing out. Um, there are, I would say, a dozen ways to skin the cat to make sure that Israel maintains uh, its QME. But the people that really know it and know the issues, they don't really talk about it publicly. But I, am, I have no doubt that uh, Israel's QME will be preserved. I also have no doubt that there is a way for the Emirates to uh, improve their, uh, their defense capabilities. There was a report a few days ago about the U.S. promising the UAE that it would not be backing annexation before 2024. Yeah, I don't know where that came from. And then as it relates to, to, to Chinese, well, can, so, what is, so can you just clarify then the U.S.-Israeli position on annexation? Look, the, the position is that uh, we've asked Israel to suspend it. They've agreed to. They will work in conjunction with us to put it back on the table. Uh, we're focusing right now on, you know, booking as many uh, peace agreements as we can. And I think when we've exhausted that opportunity, we'll revisit the issue of annexation. We don't have a hard uh, time frame on it, but it's, uh, it, it will be delayed, certainly, from, as a result of this process. Just two more questions sure. as it relates to Chinese investment, because on the, the U.S. has raised some concerns about Chinese investment in some pretty sensitive Israeli infrastructure. Do you think the Emirati investment infrastructure might be a replacement to some of that, to, to that thorny issue? I, I think you're absolutely onto something there. Um, it's better capital. It's safer capital. I think it's more reliable capital. I don't think it comes with as many strings attached or as many risks. And um, I think it's a great opportunity for Israel to maintain the sources of capital it needs without putting itself, its security, or frankly our security, at risk. Four Gulf Arab states now have agreed to normalize relations with Israel. What what message does this send to the Palestinians? I think it sends a message to the Palestinians that um, the, the, the narrative and the politics of victimization and of hate and of terror hasn't worked. Uh, they don't have a block on uh, the 22 members of the Arab League that they thought they had for many years and, in fact, did have for many years. Um, they need to get on board. The train, as they say, is leaving the station. And they can be on it with, I think, great opportunities. Or they can yet again, um, as uh, Abu Ibn used to say, they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. This may be the, the next great opportunity that, may, that they may miss. That was David Friedman. He, of course, uh, is the uh, ambassador to Israel for the United States. Uh, speaking exclusively with me earlier on uh, Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio at the White House. Of course, he was there uh, for that historic signing uh, of normalizing of relations between Israel as well as Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates uh, and the United States. Clearly, a massive shift in, in geopolitics and just how quickly Bahrain joined right after UAE. I, I think there are a couple of takeaways from that conversation. The first and foremost is what he had to say about Saudi Arabia and how the Saudis really had been uh, working with all of the parties involved uh, as it relates to that. But then also, I think, you know, I don't want to rank the points here, but another key point that was just made in that conversation was China uh, and how uh, Emirati investment uh, might be better, uh, a better place for Israel than, than China. It's remarkable. It's a 
really remarkable shift, especially when you think about just how how volatile that region has been. Coming up, we're going to talk domestic politics. We're also later on going to check in on that the the wildfires just ravaging the West Coast, ravaging the West Coast. We've got an advisor to Gavin Newsom. Governor Gavin Newsom is going to join us. You don't want to miss that. And of course, we'll get the latest on the markets as well as Oracle uh, getting that TikTok deal. Oracle. Who would have thought Oracle? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, now they're going to be on the, the smartphones of all of these millions of American teenagers. Oracle. That's coming up next. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. U.S. stocks closed higher as gains in technology shares helped offset a late slide in financials. Crude oil pushed higher while the dollar was little changed. The S&P 500 rose for a third consecutive trading session, led by communication services, real estate, and consumer discretionary shares. Uh, J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, Bank of America pushed financials into the red. All right, so joining us now to break down all of the latest economic indicators, Yelena Shalyetseva. She is a Bloomberg senior U.S. economist. I want to talk about a preview for the central bank, but first I want to understand what happened in the markets today, Yelena. Uh, hi, Kevin. Yes, so uh, as you said, uh, things are moving in the right direction, uh, led by uh, uh, techs, and uh, probably that uh, is creating some false sense of complacency for policymakers that things are really moving in the right direction, whereas uh, economic fundamentals are telling us that uh, that is not exactly right. So I think what needs to happen going forward is uh, we need more fiscal stimulus, and uh, I'm sure that uh, we are on the same page on this, but uh, unfortunately this is not happening. And, uh, you know, some sort of a um, uh, cheer in the market and uh, uh, better than expected data to a certain degree, uh, these things are not helping the situation. I think the, the fiscal stimulus is still required. Uh, more, um, you know, continued dovish from the Fed is also key. You know, it's going to be remarkable. Coming up later on in the program, we're going to check in on the fiscal stimulus front. This, of course, is the the Problem Solvers Caucus, as they're known. The Problem Solvers Caucus. 50 members, Republicans and Democrats, the moderates, the centrists. They released a uh, fiscal stimulus compromise, as they're calling it. But, Yelena, let, let's talk about some of the high-frequency data that has proved their staying power with the Fed's buy-in. I'm reading from the Bloomberg Terminal. Quote, the alternative data that has illuminated the U.S. labor market spending and mobility during the pandemic are becoming a permanent part of the toolkit for the Federal Reserve and Wall Street economists. Previously relegated to secondary status behind established government macroeconomic figures, most released monthly, the rapid shifts in activity during the pandemic have made it essential for economists to follow weekly or even daily readings, uh, in, in, including credit, debit card spending, mobility trackers, restaurant reservations, and air travel. I, I, I never knew Wall Street traders 
could care so much about restaurant <laughs> reservations, Yelena, <laughs> until this pandemic started. I mean, it's remarkable how they're all tracking. Why is how has data changed uh, during the during this pandemic in, in terms of economic indicators? So uh, obviously, the pandemic created a lot of structural changes, including the way we look at the data, but. Uh, you know, uh, the um, statistical authorities are looking at certain indicators for a reason, right? There is a, a well-established suite of different indicators that uh, flow into the GDP account. And uh, those will, will stay, you know, that there are certain reasons for them to, to be there. They have a long history and uh, they could be compared uh, along different uh, economic cycles, and uh, those will stay. In addition to that, obviously, a lot of people will start using this high-frequency data. Uh, we look at them very carefully as well at Bloomberg Economics. They just uh, help us to uh, get a sense the pulse of the economy in real time. But I think the, uh, some, some indicators will prove more useful than others. Uh, restaurant bookings uh, is one thing that will help us to better understand the services sector of the economy, which we usually get with a significant lag. Uh, we have a better sense in real time about good spending, so to say from retail sales report and such, but not so much on the services sector of the economy. But I think uh, looking at a broader picture uh, will be useful going forward. It's 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 really remarkable, especially if you're a data guru. And Fed Chair Jay Powell said during a virtual press conference on July 29th, he said, quote, what we think of as sort of non-standard high frequency data, that's become a very important thing. Because, Yelena, I mean, you know this better than anybody. Wall Street was estimating the job gains and losses during during when, when all this first started happening in March and April. And they were wildly wildly off the mark. I mean, and no one knew how to track it. So now they're tracking restaurant reservations and everything. And, and even some of the big banks are literally funneling in. If, if, when you swipe your debit card or you tap your debit card or your cell phone gets scanned, they're tracking that in order to see, hey, how is this economy moving? Explain to me what the St. Louis Fed did, what the St. Louis Fed did rather, because they made their own model estimating employment changes with everything from home base, a scheduling tool, used by 60,000 U.S. businesses and a million hourly employees. I didn't really follow this, but they've got their own data, the St. Louis Fed. Well, the different regional Feds have their different uh, models in terms of, uh, in like, even looking at different inflation indicators, uh, such as, like, uh, trimmed means and everything, which are a great addition to the traditional tools. But once again, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, have the establishment and the household survey uh, for a reason. It's a very broad sample, and it's a very uh, well-established uh, technique and method. So, and again, the the uh, the purpose of traditional data is to uh, be able for us to be able to compare it over time. So I think that's a very important, uh, uh, you know, determinant of the traditional data. But, but then again, uh, obviously the technology is changing and we can do a lot of different things in real time. And uh, that's a great benefit. And uh, I think some tools will prove uh, better than others, and including the St. Louis Fed. So on the, on the uh, theme that uh, you touched upon, and that's really close to my heart as a forecaster, I think uh, <laughs> we, we cannot blame economists for like missing on the forecast so badly because of uh, such an unprecedented nature of the of uh, crisis. In fact, we will see the Fed revising their forecasts uh, tomorrow, I think, in the summary of economic projections to quite a significant degree. I think they will upgrade uh, the forecast for this year by at least uh, one or two percentage points for the year as a whole. And uh, they will probably downgrade 2021 because of uh, the data coming in better than expected and the markets telling that uh, everything is fine. But everything is not fine. And I think that uh, the fiscal cliff that we observed uh, back in July, back in the end of July, will 
some will materialize in the data going forward. It's just going to be uh, quite a lag uh, between uh, then right. and between we will start seeing income um, deteriorating. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the Fed uh, and what we get from the Fed uh, tomorrow. Yelena, before I let you go, what's going on with the Oracle TikTok deal? We're awaiting the CFIUS national security check that's supposed to be completed any hour now. Uh, but Oracle, a uh, big day for, for Larry Ellison, quickly, in like the less than a minute we have left. So, uh, unfortunately, I cannot speak about uh, particular companies because I'm a macroeconomist, uh, so... Uh, I will just leave it there. I, I respect guess, that. And I want to say something, Yelena. <laughs> the way you feel about economists and the way you stood up for economists with the data, that's what pollsters have to do because they all blew it in 2016. Now, I'm not saying economists blew it because th this is unprecedented. But all the pollsters, they're like economists. They should take pollsters and battleground states should take a page from economists and, and shift how they get the data. They got to figure out how to get better data. That's what the economists are doing. They're looking at restaurant reservations. I don't know. I'm not a pollster. I'm just uh, I'm just Kev. <laughs> Thank you, Yelena. <laughs> I appreciate your time uh, oh, very, very much. My pleasure. Uh, and we'll we'll check in with you late, later. That's Yelena Shalyatseva. She's a Bloomberg senior economist. I'm Kevin Cirilli, chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. More coming up next. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound Off with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Shifting geopolitical tensions in the Middle East as UAE, Bahrain, visit the White House along with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. We'll take you to the latest on the geopolitical front. What does it mean for China? Plus, wildfires out west ravaging now uh, millions of acres and, and, and really no end in sight. How can this problem be stopped? And finally, 2020, all of the latest. And Oracle, TikTok, we're going to talk about it all. It was a really monumental day at the White House today because leaders from the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain joined President Trump at the White House and they signed accords that established diplomatic relations with Israel, becoming just the third and fourth Middle East nations to formally recognize Israel. I want to play for you a little bit about what uh, President Trump said at the White House, here's President Trump, and he talks about, he calls it really the dawn of a new Middle East. Here's the president. In Israel's entire history, there have previously been only two such agreements. Now we have achieved two in a single month, and there are more to follow. Now, I tried to get out of uh, Ambassador Friedman. Uh, David Friedman, he's the U.S. ambassador to Israel. I interviewed him earlier at the White House, and I said, who's next? Morocco, Sudan. He wouldn't tell me. He wouldn't tell me. I tried. Uh, but they are bullish. And based upon my reporting, I can tell you that they are bullish that they're going to name a couple of other Gulf Arab states sometime in the next couple of weeks, you know, before November 3rd, I guess. Or they have to. I mean, yeah. So we're going to wait and see. But then the president went on to say uh, that these agreements will serve as a foundation for a comprehensive peace across the region. Here he is. Here's more President Trump. Together, these agreements will serve as the foundation for a comprehensive peace across the entire region, something which nobody thought was possible, certainly not in this day and age, maybe in many decades from now. All right, I want to bring in Amy Tarkanian. She is a Republican strategist, former Nevada State GOP chairwoman. Amy, I, did I mispronounce your last name? Sir, you said it correctly. Thank you. Amy Tarkanian, she's on <laughs> with us for the hour. And Brian Brokaw, who is a political advisor to California Governor Gavin Newsom, the former campaign manager for Kamala Harris's successful candidacy for California Attorney General. Brian, welcome to the program. Uh, Amy, I want to start with you. Just it was such a geopolitical day in terms of the Middle East. And it comes at a time, I don't want to tie it to domestic politics because of the the importance of it, but I, I will 
say, I mean, it comes at a time in which the president, no doubt, wants to have some type of foreign policy conversation on the campaign trail. Sure. Well, we know that he's actually um, been heavily involved with uh, Israel in particular, especially since, you know, we are the ones who moved the embassy, um, which he, you know, received some criticism for. And um, But overseas, I know that uh, I was actually in Israel not long after it happened, and the people there were, were very pleased with that. Um, you know, what I really liked today was another uh, quote that came from President Trump, where he said that Israel, Bahrain, and the United Arab Emirates are choosing cooperation over conflict, friendship over enmity, prosperity over poverty, hope over despair. Now, these are all um, wonderful things that I know that um, all of these nations have been working towards for quite some time. I think it's, what, been at least 25, 30 years since anything like this was remotely done. Um, and it was also very promising on social media. You had leadership in Bahrain um, condemn the rocket attacks that were uh, launched by Hamas um, nice. while this was taking place. Um, so is this going to happen overnight? No. I mean, this is generational, um, the, the hate towards each other, the way that they're going to have to think about one another, the way they're going to have to cooperate with one another in order to make this a success. It's going to take some time, but it was very exciting. Um, it's a very exciting start. You know, I, I want to play for you a little bit about what Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said. Here's Bibi Netanyahu uh, speaking about, at the White House earlier today. And this quote really jumped out at me. Here he is. This peace will eventually expand to include other Arab states. And ultimately, it can end the Arab-Israeli conflict once and for all. And uh, when I, Brian, when I when I interviewed Ambassador Friedman uh, earlier, I, I asked him point blank. I mean, what what's the message to the Palestinians on a day like today? And he said, you know, I'm not paraphrasing. He said the train's leaving the station. And so for the Palestinians, I mean, now you've got four Gulf Arab states and the Saudis giving their, you know, behind the scenes thumbs up for all of this normalizing of relations, not to mention how it kind of pushes Beijing out of the way in terms of investment. And, you know, I, I mean, it's 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 really quite remarkable, but it, it goes in contrast because if if you if you believe the notion that a, a driving force for these Gulf Arab states coming to the negotiating table is because of the U.S. withdrawal from the Iran nuclear disarmament deal. But Democrats are saying that they're advocating for that. I mean, how will that how will that go on uh, from a geopolitical sense, Brian, uh, on the issue of Iran, something that the Europeans want the U.S. to stay in, but the Gulf Arab states are saying, yeah, you know, we actually kind of like that the U.S. pulled out. Yeah, I mean, I think, though, uh, we should be real. This isn't a conflict resolution that you saw today. This was a business deal, frankly. I mean, these are countries that for years have had military agreements and security agreements and economic deals between them. So this is essentially formalizing agreements that have been in place for decades, and the president's acting like he's brokered the Camp David Accords, which I get it. He's a showman right before an election. But, you know, to, 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 it's a big leap to get from here to solving the Arab-Israeli conflict. And trust me, I think we all would want to see that resolved. I'm just skeptical that this is exactly the, the you know, the train leaving the station. You know, the truth is, you know, these these forged agreements between Sunni Arab states who all have a common enemy in against uh, you know Shiite Iran. So, uh, and Iran is, is closer to a nuclear bomb today than it was when Trump took office. Do you think that should Biden win uh, the election, Brian? Do you think that some of these agreements will hold, or do you think it's back to the to, to the drawing board? I mean, that's what's really interesting is right. the timing of this. No, I, I mean, I don't. I, I assume that Biden is is going to work even harder to achieve peace in the Middle East and 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 broker a deal between the uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians. I assume these deals would hold beyond a Trump presidency. I just think it's you know, uh, again, I'm not going to poo-poo a, a peace accord. That's wonderful, yeah. but I'm just I'm not sure this is as, as monumental of an achievement as he's claiming it is. You know, earlier today, uh, we're going to roll this out over the next couple of weeks, but I, I did an interview with Samantha Power. She, of course, is the former U.N. ambassador in the Obama administration. And just this notion of, you know, whether or not uh, Biden would, would be supportive of Israel. And she was adamant uh, that that he would. It's, it's so I, I, what I learned from, from these geopolitical discussions today, based upon my reporting, is that a Biden and a Trump— in the White House would support Israel. And I can feel the 
the polarization listeners already dissecting every word I'm saying, but the way they want to achieve that and whether or not they view the Iran nuclear disarmament deal as an asset or a liability is obviously worlds apart. And so whether or not, you know, so Samantha Power made the argument that bringing the Europeans to the negotiating table would help in in terms of the the balance in the region. And the Europeans want to see the U.S. in in the the Iran deal. They want to see the U.S. leveraging uh, the United Nations and emboldening international uh, agreements. And, you know, the White House is saying absolutely not. You know, it's time for the U.S. to take a more aggressive approach. So we kick things off with geopolitics. I promise we'll bring it. We're going to bring it out west because both of our panelists are, are on the west coast tonight. So I got to go out west because these wildfires, horrible. I thought I was looking up at the moon today in the morning. It was the sun because of all the fog that's even out here, or the smoke, rather. That's coming up next. I'm Kevin Cerulli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Climate change is real. And that is exacerbating this. And so I think there's an area of at least commonality on vegetation, forest management. Uh, but please uh, respect, and I know you do, uh, the difference of opinion out here as it relates to this fundamental issue. That was California Governor Gavin Newsom, a Democrat, uh, taking a pacifying tone as he appealed uh, for President Trump to see the science during a briefing at uh, Sacramento Airport yesterday. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. we got to head out west for the panel tonight. Uh, they know they're very well entrenched in this issue. Amy Charkanian, she's a Republican strategist. Brian Brokaw, political advisor to California Governor Gavin Newsom and a former campaign manager to then uh, or to Kamala Harris's candidacy for California's attorney general. You know, here I'm in no way, Brian, equating what's going on in California uh, to to the effects here in Washington, D.C., but everyone in Washington, D.C. in the Beltway woke up and looked up today and saw what they thought was the moon. And it was really, we learned through the scientists, the sun and the smoke from all the way out West, thousands of miles away had blown over here and had made this, the, the sun look like the moon, which sounds weird, but it was kind of, it, it really kind of made you think about the wildfires out West, which are playing out, and the and the social media feeds, and of course on the front pages of the newspapers, but it's something that you all are having to deal with for quite some time. So, what's the latest, Brian, and what needs to be done? Well, we like to pride ourselves in California of exporting all our ideas west to east, <laughs> but I'm sorry, it's now our smoke. Oh wow, and, west coast, uh, best coast, I, is that what you're saying? <laughs> exactly. I know Amy is, I'm sure, dealing with the same. Um, I mean, it's I it, yep. it's terrible, and we, uh, you know, this is now the worst fire season in California history, but unfortunately, we say that pretty much year after year, and the fires are getting worse and worse as the temperatures are getting hotter and hotter, and the winters are getting drier, and this has just been a recipe for disaster, uh, and to have the president come into California and into Sacramento yesterday was, you know, great that he was here to show some support, but unfortunately, when he was asked if climate change was contributing uh, to this, which it absolutely unequivocally is, he said that the science Science just doesn't know, and that is just uh, confounding and completely disrespectful. 
and his head is in the sand, and I think future generations are going to look back at this time and just shake our heads at it. It's just been terrible. 4.6 million acres in 10 states, according to the National Interagency Fire Center, and fatalities have totaled at least 35 people so far. Uh, it's, it's an area larger than the state of Connecticut, which has burned. Amy, you know, when, to be honest, do you think Republicans are fumbling the way they talk about this? Because I, I know a lot of Republicans that I interview who, who believe that climate change exists, but they, you know, they, they, their solution to it is a public-private partnership and to innovate and, and and whatnot. And but, you know, every time it comes up, it's like the Democrats put the Republicans on defense and certain Republicans step in it. Am I wrong? Or what do you think, Amy? What's your diagnosis? Um, I think sometimes I think, yeah, your your analysis is, is correct. Maybe not the majority of the time, but yes, many times. Um, what I did like is I'm going to piggyback um, on what Brian said. You know, I really, really like the fact that the president took some leadership and um, spent some time in California with Governor Newsom. I like the fact, too, that Governor Newsom was very appreciative. They had a very cordial relationship for the most uh, conversation for the most part. Give it a um, week. I, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's okay, though, because let me tell you, I, I'm living in northern Nevada, and we are getting the smoke coming in from the Bay Area fires. To, uh, it has been so bad here for the last few weeks. That wow. you cannot see the massive mountains that are literally right behind my backyard. And my children, who thankfully, you know, their schools have already set up a hybrid system, um, they are, they're not even able to go into class um, on the days wow. where they're supposed to because the smoke is so bad. So now we have a, a second reason for having to wear masks, right? It's, it's now literally either you stay indoors once again, just like the COVID shutdown, you know, asked you to do, um, or you go out and you damage your lungs. It is so sick. The other day I woke up in the morning and I sat straight up and thought that my house was on fire and I was going to have to go and grab my children. That's how bad it really? is. Um, I'm a is it hard to breathe? California. It's oh, very yeah. hard to breathe. Yes. And I'm originally from central California where the Creek fire was taking place. And I know, Many, many families that lost their cabins. Um, I know one family that had to actually jump into a lake for 10 hours to survive wow. while the surrounding ambers were coming down upon them. It's horrific so, what Amy, we're having to go through out here on so, the West Coast. So, how, so what's the – so what's the, so the, I mean, I'm so sorry that both of you are having to deal with this. But what? So, Amy, when you hear the criticism that the Republicans don't care about this, I mean, what what are Republicans in Nevada saying is should be a solution uh, to mm -hmm. to this crisis? Well, I don't think it's just a, a one choice solution. I I'm not a scientist. I am also not a climate change denier. Um, I do believe that we do contribute to Mother Earth's problems to some degree, but also maybe there is for mismanagement problems, too. I think literally we need to take all of these possibilities and take a good hard look, and hopefully that would be the answer. It's not just going to be a one um, solution, one, one area solution. You know, you know, Brian, Just we only got like a, a, a minute left in this box, but I want to give you the, a word on this because the journal reported today that five wildfires that are burning right now in California, get this, they are already among the top 20 largest fires recorded in California's history. I know you do work with some of the firefighters out there. I mean, there's more than 16,000 firefighters who are working on this problem in California. This is massive, massive. Yeah, and what's really scary is that we're barely into fire season. Oh. The uh, previous uh, fire seasons, the deadliest, most uh, damaging fires, came in September, October, and November. And so, I mean, we've got a long road ahead of us. And, uh, you know, uh, when COVID came around, the one bright side was that many of us had N95 masks in the house from the right. campfire two years ago. So we've been dealing with this for a long time. We're just repurposing those masks, unfortunately. And, yeah, you're right. They're getting double use. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a serious issue that I really hope people in Washington take note of because this is not just a California or Nevada or, or West Coast issue. I mean, this is something that we are going to be seeing all over the country as the climate changes. It's going to look different in different places. It's not mm -hmm. going to be wildfires sometimes it's going to be hurricanes it's going to be other natural disasters yeah. it's going to get worse it's it's just it's this this should really jolt everybody awake i mean all you got to do folks is look up into the sky to find the truth of what's really going on 
Uh, and coming up, we're going to check in with Congressman Andy Levin. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. We're going to check in with uh, him on uh, the Fiscal Stimulus, the Problem Solvers Caucus. What do they have? They have a deal? You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. We got some fiscal stimulus developments today. Never thought I'd say that. We got some fiscal stimulus uh developments. And really what happened was the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is a bipartisan group of lawmakers, the Problem Solvers Caucus, chaired by Congressman Gottheimer, as well as uh, Tom Reed, a a Democrat from New Jersey and a Republican from New York, respectively, unveiled a $1.5 trillion fiscal stimulus proposal. It would have the unemployment weekly unemployment benefits at four fifty a week, significantly lower than what the Dems want and higher than what the leader McConnell wants, uh, and is about five hundred billion dollars for the uh, state and local uh, allocations. So, joining us now to talk about whether or not this thing has a shot in heck is Congressman Andy Levin. Congressman Levin, welcome back to the program, sir. Great to have you with me. Does this thing have a shot? Uh, well, I don't know. We'll see. Every, we welcome all proposals, that's for sure. Um, but we're, um, you know, we're uh, in a lot of discussions to figure out the best way forward. You know, a lot of us feel that everything in the HEROES Act was really important, really carefully considered. And so we'll see where this goes. And just in terms of where the fiscal stimulus debate is, do you think that it's it's realistic to expect some type of stimulus before November 3rd? Or is it looking increasingly like, you know what, this is going to wait until the lame duck session? I'll tell you what. When we passed the HEROES Act on May 15th, four months ago, I felt like, wow, we this is late because our schools, which uh, desperately need help, their fiscal years typically start on July 1st, often some of them June 1st. So I thought we were just doing it at the last minute then. So I, I'm just outraged it's taken this long. And I think a lot of us are really determined to get a package done that ju- does justice to the needs of the American people in this incredible time of crisis uh, before we leave. So we'll see. Um, so far, the Senate and the hasn't been able to pass anything, and the, the administration hasn't negotiated with us real seriously. So hopefully we'll get something done. And and in terms of just this, before we, we talk other topics, but sticking with the stimulus, you know, investors, and, and I'm always, you know, reticent to, to lead with that, but investors have really factored in that they really think they're going to get more stimulus, that the economy is going to get more stimulus. And leave Wall Street out of it for a second. Fed Chair Jay Powell of the Central Bank has, has said, as well as other top Fed officials, that the economy needs more stimulus. And you just have to walk down whatever town you're in to go to Main Street and see how the restaurants have been pummeled by this thing. And, and small mom-and-pop shops have been pummeled by this thing, is it, is it waning? Are the chances waning of, of more fiscal stimulus, even if it isn't before November 3rd, but in the lame tuck? I mean, are the chances waning? Is this, or it, Do you feel that Republicans that you talk to are losing uh, or, 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 or are starting to believe that maybe more fiscal stimulus isn't needed the longer the so-called recovery goes on? Well, there's no recovery going on, seriously, except with people who own stock or something. I mean, and as you say, I mean, parents cannot get child care. Uh, workers don't have, aren't getting unemployment checks. Uh, people haven't gotten, every family hasn't gotten a stimulus for, uh, check for so long. And Wall, uh, Main Street and working families absolutely need it. And I'm not going to give up hope, Kevin. We are going to keep pushing for you call it stimulus i call it relief for the american people in the worst public health crisis in a century and the worst economic crisis since the great depression so i i just feel like we've got to keep fighting for it and i'm not frankly really concerned a lot about what investors think i'm concerned 
about my constituents in Michigan's 9th District, the working people who desperately need help, and we're going to do everything we can to get it to them. And I think that's what ends up working out better for investors in the long run anyway. Congressman Andy Levin's on the line. He's a Democrat from uh, Michigan. He represents Michigan's 9th Congressional District and includes most of Detroit's northern and northeastern suburbs. Uh, There was a major development today with Breonna Taylor as her family has reached a major lawsuit settlement with Louisville. Uh, And I bring this up. They've praised this settlement, $12 million. I bring this up because you, sir, this week, have you are the vice chair of the House Education and Labor Committee, and you've introduced legislation called Strength and Diversity Act. Uh, Tell me about it. Tell me what it does and why is it important to have this legislation introduced at this particular moment uh, 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 in the national discourse? Well, you know, I think the the problem of systemic racism has been uncovered. It involves uh, violence against uh, black people and other people of color, but also it involves uh, segregation of our schools and of our housing. And the Strength and Diversity Act would simply work with school systems all over this country who want to work on desegregation, who want to integrate their schools in creative ways, and help them, give them grants to do that. So it's things like uh, evaluating new policies and evidence-based plans to address racial isolation, get transportation moving and magnet schools and other, other tools to bring kids together. Our schools are more segregated today than they were 50 years ago. And students that have predominantly children of color received $23 billion less than schools with predominantly white students, even though they serve the same number of students. So we really have to tackle this problem if we want every kid to have opportunity. And if, as, as, you know, Justice Marshall said, um, Thurgood Marshall, in his uh, dissent in in the uh, Milliken v. Bradley decision that I spoke about today, if we want people to be able to live together and respect each other we have to help our kids learn together and that's what it's all about congressman i want to follow up on something congressman andy levin's with us he's a democrat from michigan's ninth congressional district you just said something that i just want to understand you just said that schools are more segregated today than they are 50 years ago why is that this is america why is that why why is why is that 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 50 years ago they were less they were more segregated than they are today in 2020 why well, because our country has had actual legal structures to uh, segregate people, um, FHA loans, every, you know, uh, people of color were not allowed to buy houses. There was redlining by banks that was not official. I mean, I'll, I'll just give you my own experience. You know, the, 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 the Milliken v. Bradley case was about the city of Detroit, and I grew up in, in a little suburb of Detroit called Berkeley. Today, Berkeley, thankfully, is a little more segregated. But when I grew up there, um, it was uh, there were no African-American families, and we were the only Jewish family there. And what's happened is that because of housing patterns and, and credit and difficulty of getting mortgages and so forth, it's been really hard for African-American families to move into neighborhoods that would have great schools for their kids. And we... So we have to overcome that uh, if we want to have a just society, basically. And just that's, in the minute, that's what that's what the bill's all about. And just in the minute that we have left, you're also, of course, a member of the Committee on Foreign Affairs, Congressman Andy Levin. Uh, major day in terms of geopolitics in the Middle East. I just want to get your reaction to the normalizing of relations between Israel, the UAE, and Bahrain, and of course the United States. Hey, any day that new countries recognize Israel is a great day in my book. I just, moving forward, my big concerns are we really need to achieve a two-state solution, peace between Israelis and Palestinians, security for Israel, and real political rights for Palestinians. And then I'm very concerned about selling F-35s to these countries. I am not, I don't want to see the UAE uh, get Mm -hmm. weapons that would would erode Israel's quality. Uh, you know, qualitative advantage in weaponry. And I'm, I'm very concerned that that's what the Trump administration is actually up to here.
All right, Congressman Andy Levin, a Democrat from Michigan. Thank you so much, sir, for uh, coming on and talking about that, uh, all these important geopolitics issues with us. Coming up, what's on the panel's radar? I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Tomorrow, we're going to check in with Rick Rennell. Don't want to miss that. I spoke with him earlier today. He is the former Acting Director of National Intelligence. He is also the former U.S. Ambassador to Germany and the... uh, Special envoy, former special envoy for Serbia and Kosovo, that deal that happened a couple of weeks ago. He's really in the middle of all of the Trump national security conversations. And so you don't want to miss that. That'll be tomorrow. Uh, Rick Grinnell uh, uh, in in an interview with me. Um, OK, joining the panel. It's now time for my favorite part of the program. I hope they let bro call know what we're doing. Because if not, he's going to be like, what up? Amy Tarkanian's with us. She's a Republican strategist, former Nevada State GOP chairwoman. Amy, great to have you back. And Brian Brokaw, political advisor to California Governor Gavin Newsom, the former campaign manager for Kamala Harris's successful candidacy for California Attorney General in 2010. All right, Brian, the segment is called What's on Your Radar? And I never know why every day I say radar, but I do. It's weird. I can't help it. But it's about what is something that you're following, you're monitoring that, I don't know, doesn't get a lot of attention and whatnot. Um, So I'm going to let Amy start. Amy, what's on your radar? Oh, goodness. (laughs) (laughs) So much. Um, Well, let's bring it uh, a little local and a little national. I love Um, that. We had something new happen here during the shutdown. Our predominantly Democratic legislature held a special session. And during that time, they actually passed all mail-in ballot um, voting, which is a first for Nevada. Um, But on top of that, um, and this is something you know that the president has been um, very much against. We hear it on a regular basis is all mail-in ballots. That's not necessarily the concern. I will tell you, the main concern out here now is what's called ballot harvesting. And Brian should be familiar with that because California has already had that in place. Um, And so this is something that's also new to Nevadans. So I think you're going to see a lot of lawyering up here in the state of Nevada. And so I'm very interested to see how this all plays out uh, because this was against the law here in Nevada two years ago. So what is, what is for, for those who don't know, what is ballot harvesting? So ballot harvesting is where, with the voters' permission, you can collect their ballots and turn them in on their behalf. Now, our Secretary of State is the only Republican um, that holds a statewide office at this time, uh, state constitutional office, and she does not create the laws. She simply implements them, and so she's been you know, given this new tornado, if you will, to handle. And she's doing an excellent job. Um, but a lot of people are, are angry with this scenario. Um, so she tried to calm the situation down and recommended to our governor to call the special session back. And anyone who, collect, who collected and turns in 10 or more ballots would need to register with her office, um, you know, showing what kind of background they may be affiliated with, if they're a lobbyist, for example. But he turned that down. So that really infuriated a lot of voters in Nevada. You know, this whole this whole dynamic of, of the volatility in, in the November 3rd election, it's, it, it could potentially be the most litigated presidential election in United States history. That's what they're saying. I mean, and, and, and already, you know, we've been talking about this for quite some time. You might not know, you know, back when I was a kid, it was you go you stay up late. You get out the popcorn, you have the pizza, and uh, you watch, you know, you watch the returns. You stay up late. Who's president? And maybe, maybe you, you don't know until early in the morning or, or something. But, hey, folks, this isn't a, this isn't a football game, okay? I mean, the, the increase in mail-in voting, it's not like there's a fourth quarter time runs out, we have a president. 
the increase in mail-in voting might mean that this thing could take days, weeks, dare I say months, and it's opening up. Get out the Constitution. I said it yesterday to the surveillance team. Get out the Constitution because the Constitution declares when the inauguration is, but the Congress decides when the Electoral College votes, and that Electoral College vote could be very, very interesting as we navigate through the patchwork of regulatory quilt that is mail-in ballot voting. All right, that's a great one, Amy. Brian, what's on your radar? I mean, I've been fascinated to watch and see how the Biden campaign has deployed uh, my old friend Kamala Harris, because the first uh, few weeks after her selection, you know, she was largely doing what the rest of us were doing, which is spending a lot of time on Zoom. And for her, that (laughs) meant fundraising and doing TV interviews. But they really hadn't put her out there on the campaign trail yet. And that started to change over the last couple of weeks. Uh, where she, you know, she went to Wisconsin to meet with the family, and Mr. Blake, and, and then she was in Miami as well. Uh, and then today she's actually in California with uh, Governor Newsom uh, touring the uh, wildfires. But it's going to be interesting to see if they send her to swing states, to which swing states, how they use her. And um, I, I, she's somebody who really enjoys being out on the stump, and she's great at retail politicking. It's how she came up in the world in San Francisco. So I hope they do take advantage of her skill set and put her out there more. Yeah, where like that that's got to be frustrating. I mean, where she does I mean anyone there are certain politicians who love the campaign and certain politicians who just don't. I won't say the ones who don't, but I will say the ones who do. Senator Kamala Harris, whether you agree with her or disagree with her, she loves to campaign. I mean, I I even just she loves it. So I mean, yeah. it's got to be kind of a I mean, I you know, she's got to be a, the dynamics of a virtual trail have got to Kevin, I don't know it's got to be frustrating I will tell you that within 10 to 15 minutes before the president hit hit the stage on his first rally in here in Nevada um, the Biden Harris team released a press release that she was going to be visiting here today so I don't know at what time she was supposed to be here but she's also supposed to be in Nevada which is a free state wow very well, very interesting the other thing to keep in mind is that, uh, you know, with all due respect, the Democrats seem to be a little bit more respectful of the fact that we're in the middle of a global pandemic and we aren't holding these giant rallies with people that the President Trump seems to be thinking is a good idea. So it's a lot more difficult. You can't just send the candidates around the country on flyarounds with large events like we have historically. So I think we're taking a much more responsible approach, but it definitely hinders the ability to do traditional retail politicking. All right, here's what's on my radar, because I'm a giant nerd, and we haven't talked about <laughs> outer space in a while, and I want to. Venus, possible sign of life detected on Venus. An inter- I'm reading from the, from the Wall Street Journal. An international group of scientists reported the detection of small quantities of a gas in the atmosphere of Venus. They believe could be a sign of biological life on the often overlooked planet. I think it's because I'm watching Away on Netflix. I'm really into it. And it's uh, it got me thinking about Mars and everything. And, and Hilary Swank is magnificent in this series. I don't know if you guys have watched it. It's from the creators of Friday Night Lights, which is a great book, Buzz Bissinger. Then they made it into a movie and a TV show, uh, and Parenthood. But it's also got this whole Jeff Bezos, SpaceX. Or no, I'm sorry. Yeah, the SpaceX, Elon Musk, SpaceX. Don't tell Jeff Bezos I said that. Uh, on, on uh, I don't know, on all this technology. So then... They have in the New York Times that Rocket Lab may be able to send a small spacecraft to probe the clouds of Venus long before NASA or other space agencies are able to do so. Elon Musk wants to settle human on Mars with his rocket company SpaceX. Jeff Bezos wants a trillion people living in space, but the chief executive of one private space company, Rocket Lab, says that they're approaching space exploration differently and they aim to play a part in the search for life on Venus. So Axios had this today as well. We've been focusing on Mars, but maybe Venus. Maybe maybe they're out there in Venus. Do they have wildfires there? Do they? I might be interested. <laughs> send me up. I say it all the time on the show. If you're looking for a reporter to send into space, the name's Kev. Thank you to Brokaw. Thank you to Tarkanian, Amy Tarkanian, Brian Brokaw. Thank you both for spending the hour with me. That does it for me. Uh, Rick Rennell tomorrow. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Maybe they're sending me to space next. Who knows? You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.